Steve Bucci. Steve? Okay, I'm going to do this very quickly so we can get to listen to Sean. Uh, we are here to discuss the, his newest book, The Secret History of Joint Special Operations Command, Relentless Strike. Uh, Sean, if you don't know him, uh, is as sort of specialized in special operations forces. Uh, he worked for Army Times, where that was kind of his beat. He was really the only guy around that specialized in that, didn't just pick it up at other times. Uh, he's also a, a contributing editor to foreign policy. Uh, he's basically followed JSOC at least since 9-11 and a little before that. Uh, he's also covered military operations in Somalia, Haiti, the Balkans, Afghanistan, Iraq. He goes to all the nice places in the world. Uh, but if you're going to follow soft, that's where you have to go because that's where they go. Uh, he's has a previous book, Not a Good Day to Die, which is about Operation Anaconda. Uh, and it, uh, just a ton of, of articles on, on all of this material. Uh, I was kind of excited when the book came out because... One of the first things I did when I came here to Heritage was to bump into Sean on the street outside because he lives nearby here. And uh, he said, well, let's get together. I want to talk to you about, about some of the stuff you did in your other life, uh, particularly those last couple of years when I was on active duty working in the front office, which was right at the beginning of the war on terror. Uh, so he, uh, you know, I, I was interviewed as sort of a Forrest Gump kind of character having been at the decision-making level, at least watching or taking notes on a lot of the things that are discussed in this book. Uh, I have to tell you, in my opinion, uh, this is probably one of the most factually accurate depictions of JSOC you will find, both from the historical end and all the, the more recent activities. Uh, but I will tell you, it is not without controversy. Uh, I've had several people, when we set this up and put it up on our website, contact me and say, what the heck are you doing, Bucci? Why are you hosting this guy? And I said, well, because he's one of the most serious journalists out there writing about soft. He knows what he's talking about. Uh, the, the controversy is, to be honest with you, maybe there's too much information in the book. Some people feel that. Uh, we'll let you listen to Sean, and then we can talk about it afterwards. Uh, and there's also the charge, which I just finished reading a book about Waterloo, uh, and uh, the Duke of Wellington had the comment that writing a story about military operations or battles is very difficult, if not impossible, to do accurately because everybody who partakes in it has a very different take on what happened. Uh, so I know Sean has made the effort to talk to as many people as possible Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. I have a special episode for you guys for this podcast. Uh, my guest is uh, best-selling author, uh, Sean Naylor. Uh, Sean, how's it going? It's, it's going great. Thank you so much for having me, uh, having me on the show, John. Yeah, you know, I, I appreciate you coming on here. Um, I don't remember when it was that I read your first book 
Um, but it was a couple years ago. Um, and, then I, and then when you put out uh, Relentless Strike, I think it was in 2015, uh, you know, I read that as well. Uh, so I'm really happy to talk to you. Uh, you know, you, you wrote some phenomenal books. Um, and then you also uh, write and report on the sort of national security uh, space. Uh, and that includes reporting on things that involve special operations or intelligence-related uh, topics. Um, and you also have a substack. Can we talk about that quickly? Sure, yes. Um, uh, the, the, the site is called The High Side. Um, uh, that's T-H-E-H-I-G-H-S-I-D-E, The High Side, um, which uh, some of your uh, listeners will know is the... the uh, it's sort of the the slang term for the uh, sort of the classified email and computer systems uh, in uh, in DoD um, and and elsewhere in, in the government. Um, and uh, so the the website is thehighside.substack.com, and I am a co-founder uh, together with Jack Murphy, former uh, Special Forces NCO and, and longtime national security writer. Um, again, some of your audience may know Jack from uh, The Team House, which is a sort of a YouTube uh, podcast uh, that uh, that he hosts um, or that he co-hosts. And so uh, uh, we're having a good time with it. Um, it's basically uh, all but a, a full-time job for me. Um, we have a few stories up on the, the site already. We have one about the uh, uh, how the, the next uh, Delta Force commander is, is going to be a, uh, an aviation officer for the, for the first time in the unit's history. And we put some sort of background and context to that. Um, and we have uh, another story about... Uh, the keying off of President Biden's uh, trip to Ukraine, um, and we look at uh, the special operations support to that trip, but then special, uh, then using that as a as a sort of an excuse to talk about special operations support to previous presidential trips, and then uh, uh, an extensive discussion on how the Secret Service prepares. Uh, for trips to war zones, um, and how how those how those differ from you know trips to uh, uh, you know other Western capitals, um, and uh, then most recently we've had a, a deep deep dive into um, the Omega teams, uh, which were uh, quite controversial um, special operations. Teams from uh, from Joint Special Operations Command, uh, who helped uh, the CIA's ground branch uh, operatives uh, as they stood up um, the Afghan militias that became sort of basically private armies for the for the CIA across uh, Afghanistan and. Um, were depending on who you speak to, either the most incredibly loyal, terrific uh uh warriors for the United States and the Afghan government or uh or um uh people who uh together with some of the Americans allegedly 
committed a host of war crimes. Um, and, you know, or maybe there's probably some com- people who believe that they were some combination of both. Um, so anyway, that's that's our most recent article. It's a very, very long, detailed article with uh, with uh, exclusive photographs in it. Um, and uh, we're currently working on uh, another deep dive into the the history and demise of the special forces um sif teams the uh, sif being spelled c i f and uh, originally stood for combatant commanders uh, in extremist forces which were the uh the special forces companies um that were originally forward deployed in uh first tenth and seventh groups um that were supposed to uh, basically uh, back up uh, the JSOC task forces um, and and be sort of the advance guard for those task forces as well in the event of a, a terrorist attack and particularly a, a sort of a terrorist hostage-taking episode uh, in in their respective theatres. Um, so it's uh, that's that's also a, a very uh, uh, I think uh, I think your readers will find it a very interesting article. We're hoping to get it out in the next week or so, and um, and I mean I, I'm speaking on Friday, June second now, so uh, I hope uh, I hope it's it's out in the next week or so. Um, uh, and uh, you know what I what I actually really enjoy about uh, about doing this work with Jack is is you know even though I've been reporting on uh, these uh, these areas you know special operations intelligence and national security in the military more generally i find that i'm i'm learning stuff uh, with every article that that we report um uh, even some of the historical stuff uh, is is new to me so i i, I think your your uh, listeners would would Find it a value. Fair warning: um, uh, most of the articles, so I think all of the articles so far, are mostly behind a paywall because Jack and I, you know, have uh, have bills to pay. And I'm I'm a firm believer that uh, uh, journalism uh, journalism shouldn't be for free, and journalists shouldn't work for free. So uh, that's the that's the background to the high side. Um, and but uh, happy to entertain any questions about that or or the the previous uh, thirty or forty years of my career. Yeah, I think that's one of the the sort of uh, rewarding parts of uh, you know doing a lot of research for an article. I, I also write uh, some articles, um, mm-hmm. and uh, it's it's learning you know more deeply about the topic that you're you're writing about, right? Um, so I think uh, the the SIF piece is, is going to be fascinating, and, I, and I, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I've had several friends, uh, people that I know who haven't been on the podcast, but also people who have been on, who were in the SIF and, and different special forces groups. And um, I remember hearing about them uh, sort of scaling down the... Well, I don't know if that's the right word, or, or rolling back the, the SIF companies. And I, I never really understood exactly why. So I'm, I'm looking forward to that because I, I know the, the SIF companies uh, 
played major roles in different operations and, and sort of uh, covering different geographical areas for, like you mentioned, uh, any sort of hostage-taking type of situations or, or, or things of that nature. Um, okay, so let's let's start with uh, you know where you're from, and, and then maybe sort of your journey into journalism. Sure. Um, well, I uh, as 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 careful uh, listeners. Uh, might uh, might have already surmised that I, I I wasn't born and brought up in the United States. Um, I was actually born in in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, um, uh, to two British parents. My my father was uh, uh, working uh, out there as an exploration geologist um, at at the time, and uh, we moved back. For my parents, and uh, not back for me, but to uh, to the UK um, in uh, at, at the age of about eighteen months. For me, I grew up in England then for the first half of my childhood, and then my parents, who had actually um, attended uh, university in Dublin, Ireland, and retained a, a lot of friends there, moved to Dublin. Um, uh, on the literally on the eve of my ninth birthday, we we moved, and so I grew up in in Ireland for the second half of my childhood, and it was uh, in my final years in high school there that I, I became very interested in uh, in journalism and actually in in rock and roll journalism and rock music, um, and that's that's how I got my foot in the door of the business. Was I became the hard rock correspondent for uh, a magazine called Hot Press, which uh, is still going strong in, in Ireland. And uh, it's sort of a, roughly equivalent to uh, Ireland's version of, of Rolling Stone, the same sort of mix of, of music, other entertainment, um, and political and social issues um, in, in, in the magazine. So I uh, was able to leverage that um, to get a, a scholarship to Boston University to study journalism. Um, and so I came over to Boston University. Um, we're now talking 1984, so uh, as, as you can as you can tell, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. Um, <laughs> and uh, I. Uh, uh, I studied I studied journalism at, at BU with with some terrific uh, professors, and uh, during that time I um, I uh, I for a number of complicated reasons, but I I was I I became motivated to and and did to go out and. Uh, spend the summer between my junior and senior years in college um, covering uh, the Afghan uh, war with the Soviet Union, the Mujahideen, um, from Peshawar in Pakistan and traveling around the tribal areas in Pakistan um, and going into uh, Afghanistan. Um, and that, that, that was an invaluable experience. I was able to meet people who 
at the time were difficult to meet, but not nearly as difficult as they as they would become uh, uh, 20 years uh, later. Um, I, I, I spent uh, I spent part of a day drinking tea and, and chatting with Jalaluddin Haqqani, the sort of the uh, the boss of the of the Haqqani network um, in his compound in Miramshar in, oh, wow. uh, in the tribal areas. I um, I met Gulbadin Hekmatyar, um, uh, and who was, you know, running one of the Mujahideen uh, parties at, at, at the time, and, and um, uh, was also sort of soon to make an appearance on the sort of the U.S. Most Wanted list. Um, uh, and I, I met a young uh, uh, met a young functionary for one of the m- more uh, moderate uh, Mujahideen groups and and got to know him and like him and his name was Hamid Karzai. So oh, wow. I, had, uh, I, I had you know for a twenty year old kid let's say uh, you know it was it was quite an adventure and then as I said I went into Afghanistan in what we would now call I was embedded uh, uh, status with with some of Hekmatyar's forces for a, for a few days. So uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was an amazing experience, and it sort of convinced me that that's the sort of stuff I wanted to write about. And uh, came back to to Boston University, graduated. I um, I worked for a local paper uh, in the Boston suburbs for about six months, called the Daily Transcript, out of Dedham, Massachusetts. And then I went back to graduate school at Boston University. Uh, which had in, it sort of in the meantime established a center for defense journalism. And uh, they gave me a fellowship to get a master's degree in international relations with sort of a focus on national security issues. And uh, I I basically got that. And now we're talking 1990. Uh, spring of 1990, and I came down to Washington looking for a job writing about national security. And um, very fortunately for me, uh, what would basically be the perfect job for me uh, opened up at Army Times. And uh, I spent the next 23 years uh, officially, um, slightly less than that in in reality, but but officially, I, I spent the next twenty three years as a reporter for uh, for Army Times, and I, I got to um, I, I had so many incredible experiences at Army Times, and I, you know I really only have good things to say about about my time there. Um, uh, I uh, and for you, in case you're, some of your listeners aren't, aren't familiar with Army Times, it it was at the time um, a weekly newspaper uh, that was independently owned. It's not. It's got nothing to do with the U.S. government or the Department of Defense. Um, it was it was independently owned and and uh, and operated and and edited. Um, and uh, but it was the that it was, and I believe remains, the, the publication that career soldiers, whether they are officers or non-commissioned officers, 
uh, read if they uh, want to know what's going on inside the United States Army, um, inside the community. You know, we basically regarded it as a community newspaper uh, for, for the U.S. Army community. Um, and that allowed me to embed with U.S. forces on virtually every major combat operation during that period, starting with, um, let's see, the uh, I was with the 1st Army Battalion to deploy into Somalia uh, in December 1992. I was with the 1st Army Battalion into Haiti uh, a couple of years later in an air assault operation on Blackhawks uh, taking off from the deck of the USS Eisenhower. Um, there was uh, then there was the um, the Balkans and and uh, uh, I uh, I was on the 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 first Humvee to cross the bridge over the Sava River into uh, from Croatia into Bosnia. Uh, I'm really having to scratch my my sort of the sides of my uh, of my memory now to remember all of, uh, all of these and and some of this for, for folks who were around in the 90s these are all familiar names but uh, you know there's undoubtedly you've got uh, listeners who who weren't even alive then and are probably wondering what the hell is the Sava River <laughs> um, and uh, so I did. I did that. I did, uh, you know, and, and I went back to some of those places, um, uh, and uh, and then, well, to all of them actually. And then um, I there was Kosovo in uh, 1999 um, with Task Force Hawk, the an, a, a task force built around uh, Apache helicopters that was deployed down to Tirana, Albania. Um, uh, to uh, uh, but was never actually sent into combat during the uh, during the operations in in Kosovo. Um, and then I went I, once there were U.S. peacekeepers in Kosovo. I, I went and embedded with them. Um, and then, of course, that brings us up to nine eleven. Um, and you know, like so many people whose whose job is connected to the national security world, my my life completely changed. Um, uh, you know, with 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 nine eleven. Um, but in the meantime, during all of this uh, this sort of uh, learning curve, if you like, in the nineties, uh, which that was all accelerated for me by the constant, not constant, but repeated trips to um the uh, the combat training centers uh, the army's combat training centers uh, so in particular uh, the national training center uh in uh, at Fort Irwin in the in California uh, in the Mojave Desert which I probably visited uh, on average at least at least once a year um during that that period and I also made uh couple of trips to the Joint Readiness Training Center. The, the National Training Center is where the, is where the training uh, scenarios are, are arranged for uh, heavy 
uh, the the army's heavy forces, the the armor and mechanized um, forces, and it's a it's a massive space. It's it's as I believe it's it's roughly equivalent to the size of the state of Rhode Island, um, and uh, you know I spent very early on in my career. I think in 1991, I spent um, I spent uh, the better part of a week as a loader in an Abrams tank uh, as part of the Third Armored Cavalry Regiment, and you know that that was absolutely thrilling experience um for me and uh you know the, the more time you spend embedded in a force like that or in or, or indeed especially uh downrange in uh you know in somewhere like somalia or haiti or uh bosnia or kosovo you can't help but just you know uh, uh, inhale information if you like about how the army works um, uh, especially in the field, without really even trying, uh, you just you, you just observe and you hear, and the the lingo starts to become second nature to you, and and so forth. And before before you know it, your you know your your second language is army, um, and, and uh, which was good for me because I had no actual other second language uh, uh, <laughs> that I could that I could speak as fluently as army, um, and. Uh, uh, and and so that, that, like I said, you know, only in my mind at the time, uh, it might be slightly different now, but at the time, only army times of the non-governmental publications would have given me anything like those opportunities in my 20s um, and and early 30s to to do all of that. Uh, and, and you know, so I remain profoundly grateful to the to the to the newspaper and to the editors uh, for whom I worked at at, uh, at the time. Um, yeah, so that's sort that, of the, that sounds amazing. That's the first decade in a nutshell. Oh, I also wrote a, I, you, it, and I appreciate you mentioning my my books, "Not a Good Day to Die" and, and "Relentless Strike." Earlier, I actually wrote co-authored uh, another book with uh, my first editor at Army Times called Tom Donnelly. Which is called Clash of Chariots, and it's a—it's not like my other two books. It's a sort of a popular history of armored warfare told through classic tank, the famous tank battles, basically. Um, so uh, uh, every now and again, when my previous, when my most recent two books came out, and I'd be doing book signing, somebody would show up with. Uh, with a copy of Clash of Chariots, which was sort of like a, uh, uh, it would be a collector's item if if anybody collected my books, and I don't think they do. But um, but anyway, it's uh, <laughs> you don't see it very often the, uh, around these days. Yeah, that's it's fascinating um, because I think in in recent years, different people, I guess, around the globe would sort of you would hear things like sort of tanks uh, tanks are outdated, or you know tanks aren't you know, the, the powerhouse they used to be in, like, massive wars, right? But we're seeing the opposite of that in, in Ukraine right now, where tanks are playing a huge part of the, the war uh, between Ukraine and Russia. Um, so, okay, so you said a bunch of interesting things I'd like to ask you about. Um, so we'll, we'll, can we go back to your time uh, in Afghanistan? Um, so you mentioned uh, Haqqani 
who was the leader of the Haqqani Network, which, uh, mm. if I can recall correctly, worked together with the Taliban and al-Qaeda in, in the, the war against America? Yes, that, definitely. Of course, it was all in, that was all in the future. At, right. at the time, he was a commander for uh, one of the Mujahideen groups. Um, the, the phrase, at least to, to, to my knowledge, um, Haqqani Network had yet to be coined. I certainly don't remember ever reading it or ever hearing anybody in Peshawar or elsewhere using it. And I, at the time, I was inhaling books about the Afghanistan war as I was, as you know, as I was preparing to cover it um, and then was out there covering it. Um, and, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was a commander who had benefited from uh, a lot of U.S. largesse, um, just like so many of the other Mujahideen commanders. I mean, it's, it's not exactly a secret that the United States ran a massive covert uh, operation to uh, train and equip the uh, the Afghan Mujahideen, most most famously with with Stinger missiles, um, the anti-aircraft missiles. Um, which, which was that? Was, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off. Was that like known at the time, or did that come out later? No, it was known at the time, um, but not, you know, it, the, the United States, the idea of a covert oper operation is that the, uh, you know, the difference between a clandestine operation and a covert operation is a clandestine operation. Nobody knows it's happening at all. So that might be something like the recruitment of an espionage asset, the recruitment of an agent. And a covert action is the the action or the results of the action are visible but the hand of the united states in that action is is invisible or at least plausibly deniable and uh, that uh, that was the case with with the stinger missiles um uh, but i remember being in peshawar uh talking to people uh, about it, it was ongoing at the time, and it and it was understood to be ongoing. Um, and I, you know, so it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it it I think, and I believe it had been getting written about by that point in in U.S. Uh, newspapers and so forth. Okay, yeah, because I, I um I actually did a podcast with the. Uh, I'm not sure what his position was at the time, but he he basically ran that entire operation for the CIA. Um, his name what? was was that J Mike Vickers or uh, Jack Devine was his name. Oh, Jack Devine. Okay, yes. Yeah, um, and and he sort of briefly spoke about it, but I think they did a movie about that. Um, I'm trying to remember what it was called. Well, there was there's a there's another uh, there was a book about it called Charlie Wilson's War. Yes, yes, um, yeah. uh, by George Crile, and and they made a they made a movie of that of that book. Right, yeah, I remember that. Okay, um, okay, then, and you also uh, you mentioned that you had uh, met with uh, Karzai, who later became the president of of Afghanistan. You know, backed yes. by by the U.S. Uh, what was he like? He was. 
was uh, very interesting. I remembered him. I mean, obviously, I had no idea he was going to go on to uh, be the president of his nation for years. Um, but he was in many ways unique um, uh, among the Afghans that I met. He seemed um, very, very sort of humble, I would say, committed. I, I remember, to, and, and, and very erudite, and, um, you know, he was not a, you know, he, he didn't have a long hair and beard and, uh, you know, uh, and clutching an AK at all times or, or anything. I mean, he was, uh, he was obviously an, uh, uh, an articulate, uh, educated uh, young man. Um, and uh, I remember asking him, I remember asking him uh, just, we were just chatting and I, you know, he, I can't remember exactly what age he would have been. This wasn't the summer of 1987, but uh, he was of an age where most Afghan men would have been married and he wasn't married yet. And I asked him why. And he basically said, I don't feel I can get married while my country is still at war or something like that. And that, that sort of, uh, that struck me. Um, uh, I believe he ended up marrying a, a doctor as, as, as a matter of fact. Um, uh, but he was, he was, uh, one other Karzai anecdote that I, that I recall. Um, he, he late, so this was the summer of 1987. And then sometime later, and I believe, I, I believe it was at least six months later, um, if not a, a, a year, a year uh, later. He came, I was back in Boston, and uh, I saw some notice, because of course nothing was on the internet, because it didn't exist at the time, that, that he was going to be speaking at Harvard University, um, which is just across the Charles River from Boston University. And, um, so I, I, I went to, and he was just speaking in a small room as a matter of fact, relatively small. Um, and, uh, I went to hear what he had to say and I wanted, you know, they took a few questions afterwards and I wanted to ask a question and they were going to, they were going to shut, you know, everybody who's ever been to a Q and A thing knows, you know, <laughs> you've got your hand up and you're waiting to be asked. And then they say, okay, no more questions and they, they said that and and he and I hadn't really talked since I you know I was just in the in the crowd and he says no let Mr. Sean ask a question and I was astonished that a he remembered my name and uh, and, and b that he um that he wanted to uh uh that 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 uh, you know that uh, it was important enough for him to uh, to uh, to to call on me, you know, when he, the organisers of the the event were uh, were trying to shut it down. Um, so I, you know, I, that, that's that's my uh, that's my memories of the young Hamid Karzai. Uh, I never I never sort of spoke to him um, after uh, you know after uh, he became the president. Uh, so. Uh, all my memories are from when when uh, he was a 
a relative non-entity in Afghan politics. Yes, I mean it's it's he has a fascinating story uh, as far from my knowledge is from when uh, the U.S. sort of decided that this is the guy they would support, uh, and then you know he went into Afghanistan, you know, with a special operations team, um, and uh, you know, and there were some battles uh, along the way, and you know, yeah. there's books written about it, and it's really fascinating stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I covered the special operations side of that uh, in not to get ahead of ourselves, but in in Relentless Strike, my my, my book about uh, Joint Special Operations Command. Okay. Oh, yeah, okay. So we'll we'll touch on that when we uh, when we get to the book. Um, okay. So then you also uh, you also mentioned you know you spoke about being in the Balkans uh, in, in different years. Mm-hmm. Um, my, I actually grew up with some Albanian friends who were, uh, some from Kosovo, some from Montenegro and, um, I'm 35. So when that was happening in 99, I was fairly young and, but I do remember their fathers left New York and went over there to, uh, I guess to help on like a humanitarian sort of role. Um, and, you know, I just remember thinking like, wow, like, you know, my my friends' fathers are going to this this place that they're from, where there's a genocide taking place, and and all these horrible things are happening. Um, so, what was your experience there? Um, it was uh, I was I was embedded uh, for the Bosnia um, uh, for the Bosnia uh, operation when when U.S. forces moved into Bosnia. I was embedded with. One one cav um, uh, uh, out of Germany, and so uh, uh, together with a, a, a photographer from Army Times, um, we uh, we actually rented a um, an SUV uh, to to basically accompany the uh, the the column you know the the forces as as uh, as they went into uh, uh as they as they went into uh, the balkans and one thing that we were told one thing i remember is one thing we were told by the rental company was you're not allowed to take this into the balkans <laughs> which is of course exactly what we did and the only reason we were renting it um and uh uh and so we we were em- embedded with that uh uh, cavalry squadron um, uh, from the First Armored Division uh, for I, I can't remember how long now, but probably at, at least a month or six weeks or something. Um, and uh, that that was a fantastic uh, experience. I mean, I, I've I've rarely had a negative embedding experience with uh, with U.S. forces, uh, especially back then. Um, just. Uh, just always, always a terrific time, um, and uh, you know I think it helps when you're closer to the age of the of the soldiers. I'm not sure what it would be like now, being more than uh, uh, more than twice the age of of of, of most of the younger soldiers. Um, <laughs> but uh, but uh, but it, you know it was you know. I'm trying to think of the strong memories. I mean, I, one thing that I, I remember, I mean, it's very easy 
to because you're in Europe, of course, in the Balkans, and even though you know intellectually you know what's been happening uh, in, in in those in those towns and in and in those and in those countries because you've been reading about it for the previous couple of years, it's it's hard to to understand when you're just embedded with a U.S. military unit and you're not out talking to the locals very much. And when you are talking to them, you're talking to them with the, uh, you know, with, with, with U.S. forces all around. Um, but we had one episode um, for, it was the, the Orthodox New Year celebration. And in the town that we were in in Bosnia, the local Serb militia had invited the command group of the cavalry squadron to celebrate with them. Um, so we, and it was sort of like this dinner, this this big uh, uh, dinner, and it's that uh, in a it was in a sort of a it wasn't a huge hall, but it was a big, like a big room, like a, I don't know, a banqueting room or something with all the tables laid out in a kind of like a horseshoe or maybe even a closed horseshoe. Like everybody's sitting facing across a section of floor facing somebody else. Um, and you've got people beside you. Um, but the one or two things I remember from that, um, was that there was a the the cavalry squadron had a translator he was um uh and he was a a a bosniak a, a muslim um and i mean the whole reason he was there was just to be an interpreter and he was absolutely terrified of going in there and translating uh with these Serb militiamen. Now, even though he's working for uh, the squadron commander, who can call upon infinitely more firepower than this sort of Serb militia commander slash mafioso could could call upon. Um, but just seeing that the, the, the absolute terror on the guy's face sort of really brought home to me what had had been going on and it 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 wasn't necessarily misplaced fear because the uh the uh, the bosnian serb militia commander uh sort of in his welcoming speech for the his american guests um basically said uh you know we welcome you here, even though you insult us by bringing this. I can't remember what uh, derogatory term he used for for the translator, um, which was a sort of like a weird, awkward moment. Um, uh, and you know, so that was that. You know, that's one that's one memory I, I have. Uh, I mean, there was a lot of other weird stuff that happened. The um, uh, in before the before the unit entered uh bosnia uh, the, the the whole they were bivouacked in um uh they were bivouacked in uh croatia a town called zapania just just across the the sava river um 
And uh, the whole point was they, they were waiting for engineers to build a pontoon bridge. And uh, it was taking a long time. And at one point, the all of the engineer troops had their tents on the floodplain of the river, and it flooded. And so everybody's tents, you know, got flooded, and a whole bunch of stuff got washed away by the floods. So, I mean, that was that was another memory. It took far longer, you know, that you could you could tell that there were three and four star generals much higher up the chain, you know. Uh, check, you know, drumming their fingers on their desks, wondering when the hell this bridge was going to be built, and they were probably getting asked by the defense secretary and so forth. Um, so, I mean, there was a, a lot of great, great, as, as with most of the my embedding experiences, just a, a, a lot of great sort of random memories of that uh, of, of that time. Yeah, if I can recall, I think um, one of the main sort of driving reasons that the Serbs were committing these uh, essentially war crimes was against the uh, Albanian Muslims in Kosovo, uh, uh, in Bosnia. I can't recall exactly what, what why, but... Um, well, it was Serbs v. Muslims in Bosnia. Okay. Um, but, and and um, the the because Bosnia was a multi-ethnic and is a multi-ethnic country. Um, it's a slightly different situation in Kosovo, which that that situation developed a few years later. Um, so this was this was in the mid nineties, now ninety five, ninety six. Um, it's the period that I'm I'm talking about, and then the Kosovo War was '99. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it's hard to believe that this was all more than a quarter century ago now. Yeah, and you know, with the uh, the war in Ukraine, um, you know, obviously Russia invaded, uh, and Russia supports the Serbian government. Uh, so with the sort yes. of the online, you know, back and forth, pro-Russia, pro-Ukraine crowd, uh, mostly on Twitter from, from what I'm looking at, um, there's been some some talk about, uh, you know, how the, the U.S. is, you know, people have gripes with the U.S., right, uh, uh, for, for things that happened, particularly in the last 20 plus years, right? Um, but I've seen Serbian sort of pro-Russian bloggers, I guess, uh, also criticized the U.S. and and uh, some NATO members for their intervention in the Balkans in the 90s. Um, and they speak yeah, as if, I mean, you know, as if the U.S. just said, you know what, we're just going to go and bomb you guys for no reason. It's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, I mean, that's obviously not, not what happened. Um, but uh the the you're right the serbs um have always been close to the russians uh, and vice versa and i mean that some of that is the uh the the religious ties with the uh, the orthodox church um uh, so yeah i mean that i mean that that went on i mean the uh, the Balkan Wars were uh, even the most recent set of them in the late 90s were the 
the, or the, the whole 90s, I suppose, were, were incredibly complex, which is par for the course with that part of the world. And I mean, that's, that's where we get words like balkanized and so forth. Um, is it, you know, you get small, small parts of, uh, uh, of countries that are implacably, uh, whose populations are implacably opposed to the populations of other small parts of the same country. I mean, it's, uh, you know, and that, and, you know, and the country itself isn't very big. So uh, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. Uh, please don't ask me to try to explain all the nuances of uh, of the Balkan Wars because uh, it was tough enough at the time when you were, uh, you know, in in the middle of it, or at least at, at the sort of the tail end of some of the worst of it when I was embedded with U.S. forces over there. But uh, uh, 25 years since, uh, I'm, I'm I'm not sure I could even attempt it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So then, uh, you know, you finish your time over there, uh, and then September yeah. 11th happens, and then what was next for you? Well, I mean, I was uh, uh, by by that time I was a senior writer at Army Times, um, and uh, uh, you know, I was I, I had a lot of experience uh, embedding with U.S. forces, um, and so. I basically was, while writing stories, you know, uh, that fall about, you know, Afghanistan and, you know, who might be doing what in Af- in Afghanistan. Uh, my my next uh, sort of big step was to embed with. Uh, a, a, Troops from the 101st Airborne Division, a brigade called the, the Rakasan Brigade, which is the uh, uh, the third brigade of the uh, uh, of the 101st, and uh, it's all of its battalions, and they're uh, they're the first, the second, and the third battalions of the 187th Infantry Regiment, um, and that uh, that. Embed was basically from January through May of uh, 2002, and uh, and that involved uh, going down to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, where the 101st is is uh, headquartered, and flying out of there uh, uh, to Afghanistan to Kandahar, um, and spending the uh, uh, spending the first couple of months in and around uh, Kandahar, uh, the first, I guess, the first probably the first six weeks um, in and around uh, uh, Kandahar, and where the brigade was uh, was basing out of Kandahar Airfield, um, CAF, as it later became known for uh, for for years, um, and. Then I was offered the opportunity to embed with the uh, with the Rakasan uh, units that were going into Operation Anaconda. Um, what would I mean when I was offered the opportunity? Nobody told me where it was going to be or what exactly was going to happen. I was just told to sort of the Warrens in the the Army Times photographer who was with me and I would, would we we were just 
um, told to, uh, you know, pack uh, as they as they as they told us, pack for high altitude, cold weather uh, mission and pack light, which um, you know it's hard to do both of those at the same time, and um, and to be on the you know, be on the airfield at a certain time at a certain location. <laughs> we did that. We were picked up by a vehicle and driven to a plane and got on. We didn't even know where we were going. Um, they wouldn't tell us until we uh, we got there. And we we arrived at um, at Bagram, um, and uh, and then we spent a couple of days, well, a few days, uh, getting briefed up on what was going to happen in Operation Anaconda, which was the sort of the 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 last major battle and actually the largest battle of of the first phase of the of the war in Afghanistan um, and uh, and you know that, that was another sort of terrific experience for me uh, really to to uh, to be in that operation, to to be part of the air assault into the the Shahikot Valley in, in eastern Afghanistan, where the where the battle took place, um, and you know by that point I was on the hunt for something to write a book about, and so that I you know I had this opportunity basically dropped in my lap, and so I decided to. Uh, uh, to pursue a, a, a book on on Operation Anaconda and all the things that had gone right and all the things uh, in in the operation because there was a there was a big sort of special operations and, and JSOC component to that operation uh, uh, as well, um, which I I only only slightly understood at the time, but 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 came to uh, uh, came to a much fuller uh, understanding of as I as I did my reporting. So in your book, you know, you speak about the entire uh, operation, and then uh, you also talk, you know, in detail about the sort of JSOC element of it. Um, did you have access to any of those guys that you wrote about in the book? When you were there, or did that, did that all come after? Um, not not sort of interview access, but um, I mean, I certainly ran into some of them uh, in and around the Bagram. Um, uh, I mean, it was a Bagram back then in sort of February, March, uh, April of of. 2002 was a far cry from the much more modern uh, sort of set of facilities that uh, uh, that Bagram Air Base became by sort of the uh, you know the last time I was there, which was um, I believe 2010, and I'm, I'm sure it got even more modern and sophisticated until it was abandoned uh, a couple of years ago. Or, um, and so, or I get, so that, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's so the, in terms of the, the JSOC guys, I mean, I, I, you know, I was introduced to one or two of them um, and then, 
uh, and during the actual operation itself, I mean, I was uh, uh, I was embedded with a, 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 an infantry company, uh, and we air assaulted into the northern end of the Shaikot Valley, um, and uh, I, you know, the, the idea with the embedded reporters who went in uh, first, and there was only a, a small, very small handful of us. Um, was that we would, uh, you know, we would come out after a few days and and file our uh, file our stories, um, and the helicopter that I uh, that I mean I I was happy to stay out there longer, frankly, um, but uh, the helicopter that that was sort of not. That I was told I, I needed to get on basically to to, to get back to Bagram was a an MH47 from the uh, from the 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, and uh, on that helicopter, getting on the same helicopter, which which basically put you know landed just very close to to where the you know we were we. Were bedded down on the side of the on the, on the side of the valley um and where the the company command post uh was um but that helicopter was also picking up and was was really the only reason that it was landing there uh, uh the juliet team uh of uh delta force operators um from the advanced force operations uh cell that uh, had conducted this extraordinary, uh, extraordinarily successful infiltration of Al Qaeda lines at, at the Shaikot Valley, and had been one of the main reasons, perhaps the main reason, why that battle didn't end in complete abject defeat for the for the United States, um, and uh, these guys who were on uh, all-terrain vehicles. Um, had shown up a, a, a day or so previously uh, at our uh, at our location, and I and the public affairs officer who'd been sent along to uh, unnecessarily, in in my view, to hold our hands or to uh, uh, to keep an eye on us, um, uh, basically told us that we weren't, you know, we weren't allowed to talk to these guys. Um, uh, so I, I mean, you know, not wanting to create an unpleasant scene, I, I you know, I uh, I refrained from doing so at that at that moment in time. Um, you know, I later found out, or you know, far far more than I ever imagined I would find out about about what they'd been uh, what they'd been doing. Um, uh, as I as I reported, uh, not a good day to die. But then, anyway, that was. I mean, that we we flew out of we flew out on that MH47, and uh, that was actually my second time on a 160th bird because in the mid 90s I'd gone down to Fort Campbell to report a cover story on the 160th, and um, had been taken out for a training flight on an uh, MH6 uh, Little Bird, so I. I, I suspect, but I certainly wouldn't want to claim this without doing due diligence. But I suspect I, 
I, I'm I'm the only reporter, or maybe I was at the time, maybe somebody else has done this now, to have flown with the 160th in both training and uh, and combat. That's um, pretty fascinating. So that yeah, so that was so that was uh, yeah, that was Operation Anaconda, and then uh, I spent the next uh, you know next few weeks mostly sort of doing the very initial reporting on for the book, and then I um. Uh, you know, over the over the course of the next um, two and a half years, I you know I I sort of took about roughly about a year off um, in bits and pieces, and uh, and uh, you know reported reported out the the battle, and the the book is basically a uh, it's a it's a really sort of in depth narrative. Uh, account of how that operation came together, uh, all of the different moving parts, and how they affected the the outcome of the battle. Um, and it's you know there's a, there's a fair amount of of detail that I think very casual readers um, got a bit tired with, uh, but. Uh, in, in the you know may, maybe it was a bit too much for casual readers in the first half of the book, but as as numerous readers have observed, once you get to the second half of the book, you understand why you read the first half of the book because now everything makes complete sense. Um, so that's that, that was that was Afghanistan, and then uh, I actually had to break off from reporting and writing. Not a good day to die. <laughs> Because the Bush administration uh, decided to invade Iraq, so next thing I knew, I was in Kuwait in uh, uh, in early March of uh, 2003, again with uh, uh, with my partner in crime, Warren Zinn, uh, photographer extraordinaire from Army Times at the time, and uh, and we were embedding with another. Uh, Cav Squadron uh, 3-7 Cav, the Division Cavalry Squadron, um, out of Third Infantry Division, uh, which had one of the sort of the leading was basically the leading edge of 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 the Third Infantry Division part of the invasion of Iraq, um, and that that was another extraordinary uh, extraordinary experience. Um, that just just our, our time with with uh, with with three seven cav and the invasion. Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over two thirds of the globe's corn reserves and over half of its rice and over half of its wheat. But when asked about it, China lies. One China expert says that they, of course, will never admit to something like that. Well, what does China know that we don't? When it comes to global food shortages, China is the canary in the coal mine. You see, China is the world's number one importer of food. They rely on the rest of the world to keep their people fed. So they can't afford to mess up or there will be riots, civil panic, or even worse, over a billion people won't have food to eat. What does this mean for Americans like you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why it's a smart idea to stock up on a kit of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food. Create your own stockpile of the best-selling Four Patriots survival food kits. It's hand-picked in the USA. The kits are compact and they stack easily. 
They have different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, and their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriot Survival Food by typing in the code RECON at checkout. Just go to 4Patriots.com and use RECON to get 10% off your first purchase of 4Patriot Survival Food. That's 4Patriots.com. Use the code RECON. Um, so just to quickly, uh, you know, uh, go back to Anaconda quickly. Um, yeah. So, you know, within that battle, I, I think that was at the time the, the biggest uh, battle in Afghanistan uh, for the war. And um, yeah. And then, you know, and you go into the into great detail in the book, as you mentioned, and it's a fascinating book. Um, you know, I personally loved every second of it. And I recommend that anyone interested in that uh and the audience should really get a get a copy of it um and it really breaks down uh, how some of these operations were run at the time and 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 you can kind of see where some of the mistakes were made uh and then you know within that uh there was the the battle of um uh, robert's ridge where uh, a navy seal was killed and uh uh, an Air Force combat controller and several Rangers were also killed, and I think a, a PJ. Uh, and then, you know, within that battle in particular, uh, John Chapman was awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, and, and there was a whole controversy around that, uh, you know, with the SEALs and everything. But um, it, it was really the, the first big engagement of the, uh, the Afghan war. Um, and then, you know, even within... Uh, you know, you mentioned some of the, the Delta Force sort of reconnaissance teams uh, that played a, a pivotal role uh, in, you know, sort of breaking behind enemy lines uh, in, in that battle. And, um, you know, I think one or two of them were, one or two of those Delta operators were uh, later killed in Iraq uh, a few years later. Um, That's right. Yeah. Bob, Bob Horrigan was, was right. killed in, 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 in Iraq. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So just for the audience, if you if you really want to know more about that, uh, I, I highly recommend you get a copy of the of the book. Uh, it's called "Not a Good Day to Die: The Untold Story of Operation Anaconda." Uh, what year was it published? It was published uh, three years to the day after. D-Day of, of the operation, so March 2nd, 2005. Mm, okay. Okay. Um, all right, so then uh, so then you get to Iraq, and then uh, did were you there for multiple sort of embeds, or? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I did, I did the invasion with 3-7 Cav, um, and, uh, and then, you know, came came home, kept kept working on uh, Not a Good Day to Die and, and doing other stuff with for, for Army Times. And then I went back to, so that was 2003. Then I my next embed actually was back in Afghanistan in autumn of 2005. I, I, I sort of did a mixed embed with some of the time with uh, regular infantry units and, and some with... Uh, First uh, Battalion, Third Special Forces Group, the the Desert Eagles, um, who were based down in Kandahar at, at at the time, and so I spent some time with them. 
Um, and then uh, I, uh, and then my next embed after that was the summer of 2006. And uh, I, uh, I was embedded with um, a striker cavalry squadron um, and striker vehicles, you know, the, the, the armies wheeled uh, armored armored vehicles. Um, and they spent the first month or so of the embed, uh, they were out in Anbar province. Um, and then the, uh, they, the, 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 they were one of a number of, of, uh, of units who were extended in place by the, uh, uh, by the defense department and basically, uh, told, told they were going to, they were going to do, I think another three months in, uh, in theater, but they got moved to Baghdad as, as part of that. So I stayed with them and then I traveled with them to, uh, to Baghdad to, uh, what was called the Victory Base Complex, uh, which was a series of bases, the largest of which was called Victory Base, and uh, they they were all at uh, basically on the the grounds of uh, or near uh, Baghdad International Airport. Um, so uh, so yeah, that was the summer of two thousand and six. Um, then I was back in Iraq. I believe less than a year later, in the spring of 2007, bouncing around to different uh, different units that were training up Iraqi security forces at the time, different, you know, MP units, um, uh, some of the heavy forces, I think, some of the light forces, but um, uh, I don't have the I don't have the clearest memory, frankly, of that. Of, of that embed, but I think we were with other striker units as well. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, any of your audience who are either veterans of or students of the uh, the Iraq War will know that the, the you know if you the year from from mid two thousand six to mid two thousand seven was uh, you know was a fairly uh, uh was it was a fairly awful time for uh for iraq um and and a very active uh time if you were an, an embedded reporter over there um but uh, but anyway very very interesting uh, as as always oh so there was one thing i forgot to ask you so uh you mentioned sort of uh, you know, embedding with these units that were sort of air assaulting into uh, different areas. Were you jumping with them? No. So uh, the, the not these were not airborne assaults. Ah, gotcha. Air, okay. Air assault. So, so this was that you know an air assault is using a, 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 a lift helicopter like a Black Hawk um, or a Chinook. Um, uh, so no. We were. I, I was. I. Uh, I was not jumping. I uh, got you. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For, when you mentioned it in my head, I was like, "Was he jumping?" Okay. Um, 
Okay, so that that's pretty uh, fascinating stuff. And yeah, I mean, that time in Iraq was a, a pretty terrible uh, time, and especially for those uh, those infantry units who typically sort of deploy for ten months or a year, or you know, and then they get extended. And from my understanding, in some cases sort of last minute, so they're kind of expecting to go home, and then they're told, oh, you know, you have to exactly. stay for, right. Yeah. No, exa- ex- exactly. And, I mean, you could just, out in Ambar, I mean, things were things were dangerous, but they were, you know, uh, when, when you were on the base, other than the, the occasional rocket that got fired into the base, by insurgents, you you sort of felt, uh, you know, you certainly were, all your uh, senses were on alert when you were outside the base, but on the alert, you, I mean, on the base rather, you you, uh, you didn't feel as necessarily as aware of it. But in Baghdad, you could just stand in, in the middle of Victory Base complex and hear stuff blowing up in Baghdad all day long. I mean, it was extraordinary. Um, so, uh, so yeah, just, uh, just again, you know, you, I felt incredibly fortunate to sort of be, uh, you know, eyewitness to, to some of this stuff that, that most civilians never, you know, never come close to. Okay. So, um, so you do a couple uh, embeds uh, in different areas of Iraq, uh, and then what was next for you after that? Um, uh, so I, I had by that point I had uh, when I wasn't embedding I had uh, become a specialist reporter at at the Military Times papers covering special operations forces. So I that that was a sort of a job given to me after the publication of Not a Good Day to Die in, in 2005, and so I um I I was basically uh, reporting and writing and uh, as much as I could about uh, special operations uh, at, at the time and learning as much as I could about them and. Uh, you know, spending a lot of time meeting people and, you know, uh, you know, for, for drinks or for coffee or for meals and, 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 uh, delving into that world as, as, as deeply as, as, as I was able. Um, and so that, that was sort of the 07, 08, uh, time period. And then in 2009, I went back to Afghanistan um, in the, I believe, in the autumn of 2009, um, and uh, that was, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote a, I mean, a, I'm, I'm not sort of going into a lot of detail because we, you know, there's only so much time we have talking about some, you know, some of the more high-profile articles that I've written, but. Um, uh, especially on the special operations stuff. But uh, one article that came out of that embed was about, a, um, you know, a, uh, a striker brigade in the Argandab. I was embedded in the Argandab with a, 
and that, you know another great bunch of great bunch of soldiers um uh and uh they uh the Argandab, the Argandab, which is a, 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 a valley um, and a very, you know, traditionally a, um, it's, well, it's a couple of things traditionally. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a center of the sort of the fruit and especially the grape uh, uh, business in, in uh, you know, grape farming, I suppose, in, in, uh, Afghanistan, and there are, you know, lots and lots of vineyards there. Um, and uh, uh, but the the vineyards use um, basically mud walls rather than the sort of the high tech things you see in. Uh, well, high tech is, is maybe not the right word, but the more complicated uh, devices that hold the grapes up in um, uh, in European vineyards. Uh, in the Afghan vineyards, where of course they're not in the wine business, um, uh, they use these sort of like mud mud walls and sort of great the, the, the great plants sort of grow up those. Um, but of course that that also makes them perfect uh, guerrilla warfare territory. And it was a little bit like being in Baghdad. Uh, you know, two or three years earlier, you could, you know, you could stand in the Argandab sometimes and just listen to things blowing up. It was, it was the hottest part of the world for U.S. forces at that moment in time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I was with a brigade uh, whose uh, brigade commander had a sort of rather different and unique take on how to fight the war which uh, ran counter not only to the um to the way that general mccrystal uh who was the the four-star commander uh running running the afghan war at the time uh was was to, to the ways that he was directing and advocating but also to the ways that this Brigade commanders, uh, soldiers thought should have been uh, the war should have been fought, and so I wrote an article that basically said that with a with a lot of detail and on the record quotes, and that that created quite a stink. I mean, this was all in the days before social media really took off. Um, so, had it been in the sort of the days of you know, Twitter, uh, some of these stories would have, <laughs> I think, made a, a much, you know, an even bigger, uh, a, an even bigger mark than, than they did. But, um, uh, you know, I certainly know that, uh, that there were meetings held back in the United, back in the United States where the unit's families were told, you know, uh, I think the unit was from Fort Lewis in, uh, in the state of Washington. Um, you know, they basically tried to undercut my my reporting without without an awful lot of uh, success. Um, so that was 2009, 2010. I went back to Afghanistan. Um, this time, a pure special operations set of embeds. Um, uh, I, I was embedded with. Uh, I believe it was Sif Sok 
Afghanistan. Uh, of course, the, the as, as you're doubtless aware, uh, the the set of acronyms and abbreviations for the different special operations headquarters and task forces in these wars just kept sort of morphing and evolving and and, and changing. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, but I, I was basically with the. Uh, uh, you know the, the the senior headquarters of the White Sof in Afghanistan, which was run at the time that had, that, that the general in whose headquarters I was embedded for part of the time was was Scotty Miller, who you know former Delta Force commander, um, <clears throat> future you know uh, and and, and uh, you know. Uh, you know, JSOC, uh, you know, JSOC veteran and the future, uh, uh, you know, future four-star commander in uh, in Afghanistan. Well, wasn't um, he the JSOC commander at a point or no? Yeah. Okay. Um, no, he, uh, yes, he was. Yes. I, I think, I mean, I should know, I know I should know this. I'm, uh, uh it's uh, you know, relentless strike came out eight years ago, and I've got to uh, uh, I've, I've, uh, the, the days when I when I had every uh, commander's not only memorized in order, but which month the you know, which month and year their uh, uh, their uh, their tenures of command began and ended uh, are long gone but uh uh but but yes um so that so that was uh, uh that that was uh, uh you know that that was that was really my um um uh that was the last the 2010 Embed was the last uh, 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 was was the last um, time I think that I was embedded downrange because of course uh, um, after that uh, he uh, after that it became almost impossible uh, with the sort of the you know the JSOC missions in Syria uh, and 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 beyond to to embed with uh, with special operations forces and uh, and the and special operations forces increasingly became the forces that were doing the the heavy lifting uh, as as the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan drew down and the uh, you know. The, the wars continued in Horn of Africa and Yemen and and uh, Syria, Iraq, and and so forth. Um, uh, uh, so, um, and, and by the way, I'm I'm just checking while we're on while we're talking. Uh, uh, Scotty Miller served as the uh, uh, commander of JSOC from uh, 2016 to 2018. So, ah, okay, yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So I mean, I, I the next my next challenge uh, was um, uh, 
I wrote a series of I wrote a series of articles, a six part series of articles for Army Times, well for the all of the military times papers, um uh, that were published in uh late uh twenty eleven on the, the secret war in the Horn of Africa. Um uh, all about sort of basically sort of special operations uh stuff that was that that was happening in in in, in Somalia and neighboring countries and then that was that was actually the last work that I did for army times and uh or for the military times papers and I took uh, I went on book leave then to work on what would become relentless strike my history of joint special operations command uh, from its uh, inception to through, I suppose, uh, 2014. Um, and that took me basically uh, uh, basically three years to, to report and write. Um, uh, all, of, all of 2012, all of 2013, it was most of 2014. Um, and, uh, uh, that was, um, uh, you know, that was, that was another, you know, that, when I finish books, the, at least the last couple, I sort of say to myself, I am never doing that again. Yeah. That was exhausting, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, after, after a while, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm on 10, you know, it's about time that I started on another one, but I, 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 I at the moment, I'm, I'm devoting all of my energy to uh, to the high side, as, as, as we discussed earlier. But because uh, there was a, a basically a ten year gap between uh, relentless strike uh, and preceding it, not a good day to die. Um, so, uh, so anyway, that's that's uh, that br- that brings us up to uh, to relentless strike. Hang on a second. Uh, uh, let me uh, let me try to deal with the uh, with sure. the okay. Yeah, no problem. Sorry about that. That's fine. Sorry about that, John. It, no, no worries. He'd been he'd been very good for uh, <laughs> for an an hour and a half, and then yeah. and, uh, uh, and then decided it was time for uh, it was time to either be fed or go to the bathroom or both. So <laughs> yeah, that's all right. Um, okay, so let, let's uh, let's talk about uh, relentless strike. So. Uh, I remember when it came out, I, I I might have gotten a pre-order copy of it, to be honest. Um, but when it came out, I, I read it right away. Um, it was really fascinating. As you mentioned, you sort of you laid out the history of JSOC from its uh, early days to about 2014. Um, and, and one thing I, I do remember is it caused a little bit of a stir, like, amongst the sort of retired kind of JSOC community. Um, 
and and I, I if I can recall correctly, I think uh, guys were talking about it online and like you know who the hell spoke to Sean Naylor kind of thing. Um, but it was really fascinating. Uh, and then uh, you mentioned the Horn of Africa, and this one thing I I sort of I can recall from it's been years since I, I read the book, but um, I, I can recall. Uh, you wrote about a the, a time that a I think it was a, a a CIA team was going into Somalia to maybe have some sort of meeting with um, a warlord or something, and uh, they were uh, essentially being escorted by SEAL Team Six operators. Uh, and then, and I'm not sure why I can recall this in particular, but uh, I think you wrote that the the officers, the CIA officers, were telling the SEALs to not uh, bring weapons. And uh, and the SEALs sort of protested, and then, but the, the CIA guys, you know, said, that, you know, absolutely not. And then they, they sort of, I think they packed, like, uh, you know, broken down rifles in their bags anywhere or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, no, once you got to the last part, I, I then remembered the... Uh, that, the the anecdote. Yes. No, that's, that's right. Um, uh, no, those, I mean, there's, the book has scores of little anecdotes like that, uh, in it. Um, uh, you know, I was, there's always, you know, there's always stories that you don't get or that you can't confirm. And so you don't put, put in the book, but I, you know, I was, um, I was very satisfied uh, with it as, as, you know, I think it's the first full length sort of history of book, you know, book length history of, of, of JSOC. And I believe it remains the only one. And I mean, as you can imagine, it's incredibly challenging to report a detailed, accurate history of a secret organization that uh, whose raison d'etre is to, control command and control secret operations run by other secret organizations um and so it's uh you know it 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 was a reporting challenge but i, I uh you know i'm based on the the feedback uh, I, I you know from from readers uh i think i i was able to to achieve what i what i set out to achieve Yeah, and it was it's a great book. Um Thank you. I, yeah, I, I I thoroughly enjoyed it and and it it really generated a, a ton of sort of discourse uh amongst the sort of special operations community of mainly retired guys, you know, who are online and doing podcasts or whatever. Um but yeah, you know, and yeah. and look, I you know, I, I from their perspective like I kind of get it like, you know, they don't want people whatever talking about certain things and um but i i still think and this is sort of my just general view on books and this is more pertaining to guys who get out and write books is you know i, I still think uh it's important to sort of tell the history of of you know what is happening uh in these you know sort of highly regarded units right that and uh essentially yeah. Is is funded and and equipped by taxpayer dollars, right? So, uh, and of course, and, and exactly, 
Right. So, like, of course, you know, you don't want to reveal things that could compromise anybody or, or operations or methods. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, uh, you know, taxpayers fund all of this. And I think to some extent we have a right to know, you know, whatever we can, right, if, if anyone's interested. So. Yeah. Yeah, I mean the points. That the I mean, I could, I could, I could talk all day about this. But I mean, the points, the, the, a couple of, uh, you know, things that I would highlight is that it, it's one thing, and I'm not sure that I would necessarily agree with the argument. But I, it, 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 it certainly, uh, you know, I can imagine it being made that. That the you know special operations uh, issues and 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 details ought to remain secret when those special operations forces are fighting a sort of a uh, uh, when those operations are conducting on the fringes of of major wars. Um, it's it's completely in my mind different to make that argument about special operations forces when the special operations forces themselves are the supported effort in the war as they were in both Afghanistan and Iraq and i mean that was something that it took me some years to realize is you know at first you 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 kind of assume, but you don't know that there are special operations forces in in the in the theater, and then you realize that there are special operations, and, and you know that there are, and 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 then it, there's a whole other layer of understanding, which is like, wait a minute, all of the rest of this stuff is just is just icing on the cake of the special operations forces missions. The, the special ops are the cake. The special ops are the supported effort in these wars, um, and and JSOC uh, being the the most supported of the special operations missions. Um, so you're talking about basically the the United States's main effort in 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 multiple, depending on where, how you define the multiple campaigns of of, of one global war or multiple wars in different countries all being fought you know at trillions of dollars of united states uh, uh you know coming from united states taxpayers um and uh, and all being fought in their name and of course uh you know incurring uh inevitably uh, thousands of casualties of american casualties not to mention the 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 you know many many tens of thousands of of casualties uh, from from uh, other nations and from the host nations and uh, the idea that we should just as as reporters you know sit on our hands and and pretend you know that, that not to notice that that is going on uh, to me strikes me as absurd and it would be a betrayal of you know what journalism is supposed to stand for in a free society and what it's supposed to the the the, the function it is supposed to perform in a free society um 
So that's my, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll get off my, uh, my soapbox. But you're certainly right that, uh, that Relentless Strike, even more than Not a Good Day to Die, uh, created a, uh, a lot of discourse, as, as you put it, in, in, the, in the special ops community and, 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 and in the wider National Security Committee. I mean, there was. I, multiple people have told me that there was a big FBI investigation uh, into, uh, into how I got my information. Um, uh, I, I know that, it, that in certain uh, units and organizations, uh, personnel were told that it, it was illegal to own the book because it represented a uh, a uh, you know a mishandling of classified information wow. or something like that. Um, uh, I was I, I was told that it was uh, it was removed from the Defense Intelligence Agency library, uh, probably for a similar reason. Um, uh, and yet, you know, I, uh, you know, I, I heard very positive things from a lot of special operations uh, and JSOC sort of uh, alumni about it. Um, you know, it, uh, I had an eyewitness report of somebody who visited, uh, let's just say, a recent national security advisor of the United States while while that person was in was in office in in the White House and told me that relentless strike was prominently displayed on his uh, on his bookcase in in, in the White House. Um, <laughs> That's funny. And uh, so uh, you know, uh, I think one of my favorite anecdotes, I mean, sort of that makes that sort of made me feel good as as the author is someone told me not not long after it had come out. So it was a sort of a relatively thick hardcover book. Um, that they had been walking down Connecticut Avenue, uh, which is in, in downtown uh, Washington D.C., um, and in fact leads leads almost straight straight to to the White House. Um, and uh, and somebody had walked past them on the sidewalk but basically not even paying attention to traffic or people around them just with their head in the book, turning pages and, and reading it as they walked. And I thought, <laughs> okay, and I, I've, I've, that, you know, I've, I've hit at least one bullseye there. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, it was, um, I mean, it was, it was, uh, it was an interesting few weeks after the book came out and all of that controversy was, was, was going on. But, um, I, uh, you know, I'm I'm I, I'm very proud of the book, and so I'm. You know, I'm. Uh, uh, you know, I, I'm. I'm. You know, I've I've thought long and hard about doing a sort of a part two, and I've, I've sort of decided against that. Um, uh, but uh, I, you know, I, but I'm happy to let let that work stand on its own and, and speak for itself. Did you have any, uh, you know, were there any like sort of direct negative feedback to you, or like people saying anything sort of negative about it to oh, you? Oh, I mean, um, there's one individual who'd been a um, uh, had been an officer in Delta Force, um, and. 
I had tried to uh, engage him. He, he I mean, uh, he he writes uh, thriller uh, thrillers now that basically trade off of his um, uh, his his experience in Delta Force. And I, I haven't read the thriller, so I can't. Know. They may be fantastic thrillers. I, I'm I'm not trying to to disparage to, to disparage uh, them at all, but. I had reached out to him um, while reporting it, um, you know, just to say, hey, look, I, I really appreciate your insights uh, uh, for the book that I'm writing and given him my contact information. We've gone back and forth. He basically, if I recall right, and, and this is just off of memory, um, he he basically said that he he didn't feel able to do it because he... He think he still had a security clearance, and he was doing some consulting for the Defense Department or, or defense contractors or something. I, I can't remember. But I was like, you know, okay. Anyway, when my book came out, he um, uh, and oh, and I had been told that he had uh, another Delta veteran had told me that that this guy had. Um, being in charge of a, a military freefall jump into Afghanistan, and a freefall mission into Afghanistan in the sort of the early days of the war in Afghanistan. Um, and I, I cover these freefall missions quite extensively in the book. And, and I'd just been told that he, he'd, uh, he'd been in charge of one. Um, and, and, you know, and that was wrong. I mean, it's to my knowledge, it's the only factual error in the first edition of the book, um, which he obviously. I mean, I, I I remember I told him that that this is what I that I was reporting this and that I'd like to talk to him about this, and it would have been the easiest thing in the world for him to say, "Hey, look, off the record, that wasn't me," you know. Um, uh, what he, but he had a blog. As, as an author, and he, um, uh, you know, he he basically said, once my book had come out, he basically said, you know, to, and to try to undercut my credibility, he basically said, look, this um, this didn't happen. I, you know, I didn't do this. He says I did, but then he, you know, he basically, I think, what the as the kids would say now, he doxed me, right? So he reproduced the um, my emails to him with all my contact information. And I, I think he said something to his leaders like, why don't you let Mr. Naylor know what you think about this or something? I mean, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but it, it was words to that effect. I had no idea this had happened, okay? And so... Um, uh, I'm, I suddenly start getting texts on my, you know, on my phone and, and emails. And I, I just, you know, the, that were very, you know, insulting and, and, and vitriolic from people. I have no idea who they are and, and certainly have no idea how they got my my cell phone number right? and it was because of this um and so that that was an interesting experience of course i later met and 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 uh, uh got to know the individual who had actually commanded that that um that raid 
um, or that or that free fall mission. Um, and uh, you know, so I mean, that's that was a little frustrating to me because. Uh, the individual in, 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 the, in question, the, the thriller author, could have could have simply said, told me what he said on his blog, without without breaking any uh, security, without violating any security uh, issues, without without breaking his non-disclosure agreement, saying saying. I've never done something. It's it's hardly uh, breaking an NDA, um, and uh, so that was. I mean that 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 was weird. I mean that's. I mean over the years, you if you're in, you know, if you're in journalism, as a as a news reporter, you have to develop fairly thick skin. I mean I'm, I cover the military, which is frankly, better than if you cover. Politics, especially sort of the, you know these days, given the uh, uh, the overheated uh, nature of political discourse in uh, in the United States these days, um, and uh, you know, but I mean, I've I've gotten used to sort of seeing on you know special ops chat boards sometimes. You know, I mean, there's. A, you know, there's a lot of those chat boards where I, I people say very nice things about me, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm grateful and appreciative of that. But every now and again, you'll see, you know, Sean Naylor needs to die a painful death or something Jeez. like that. I mean, that that was one that, that was one that that sticks out to me from some years ago. Um, you know, so uh, uh, you know, you, you've like I said, you've got to develop a you know a thick skin about this sort of stuff fairly early in your career, I think. Yeah, I mean that that's unfortunate. Um you know, some of the, the the sort of weird antics around, you know, some of that stuff, but um but I mean overall yeah. I, I think it was, you know, a, a great book and uh you know, anyone who's interested in the history of JSOC, I mean that that's probably where you would go, right? Um I would hope so. <laughs> yeah. I would hope so. I mean but I'm but I'm biased. So uh, <laughs> maybe you should ask some other people what, but uh, I'm, that, that's where I would go. I'm, I, one of the things that's made me most grateful is I, you know, I've met um, I've met some people just in, in just randomly, not 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 while reporting necessarily, um, and uh, and couples whose husbands have at some point or another have served in or you know or otherwise being part of one of the jsoc task forces and um they uh, uh what they've told me is you know i mean a lot of these guys you know uh, feel like they have to keep you know operational secrets from their even from their wives right? and they're going to get asked about that in some of their uh, polygraphs and, and and so forth but uh, what I've been told by more than one couple is they've basically said, you see this book, you should read this book and then you won't have to ask me any more questions or something like that. <laughs> That's funny. Um, so. That's funny. Okay. So then, uh, so you, you release this book and then, 
from that point, you were basically just uh, publishing articles uh, on different platforms? Yeah, so after that, yeah, exactly. After that, I am. So that book came out in the September of 2015, and um, I'd uh, I'd finished the heavy lifting. Really, that the, the, I turned in the manuscript about a year prior. So in that intervening year, I worked on contract in uh, late in the fall of 2014 for the New York Times on um, uh, a, a big takeout big deep dive uh, article that came out the following spring on SEAL Team 6. But I was one of, I was, uh, uh, you know, I was brought in just to help. I mean, there were six reporters who worked on that, uh, who worked on that story, six bylines. Um, uh, and I, I was uh, very grateful to, uh, to be given the opportunity to be one of those six. And uh, the story won a, uh, uh, a George Polk Award, which is um, uh, a fairly major uh, journalism award. Um, uh, so that that was a, that was a terrific experience. And then I went to work at um, foreign policy as the counterterrorism and uh, intelligence uh, reporter uh, in basically in early January of uh, 2016. No, 2015, I beg your pardon, 2015. Um, because the relentless strike still hadn't come out, but I was essentially done with it other than, you know, going back and forth with with the publishers, lawyers and, and editors and so forth. Um, and, uh, and that was an interesting experience at foreign policy. Um, I worked there for roughly, uh, I don't know, uh, seven or eight months. Um, but ultimately, uh, uh, it, uh, I didn't see eye to eye with my boss. Um, and in most cases in in the world, when you don't see eye to eye with your boss and someone has to leave, it's not the boss. Um, so... Uh, uh, so I was on my way and then I was, I basically took a deep breath, um, and, uh, collected my thoughts for a few months. And then I was back freelancing for the New York times on a number of different stories. Uh, one of which ended up being a, a front page Sunday, front page deep dive about the, the Takagar battle from, from operation Anaconda that, that you were, to which you were referring uh, earlier with uh, the deaths of uh, uh, of uh, John Chapman um, and uh, and Neil Roberts and uh, Rangers and PJs and and there was also of course a one um, sixtieth uh, uh, airman who was who was killed in that fight um, and. Uh, so we basically, I was working with Christopher Drew, who I'd worked with uh, on a number of these stories uh, with the New York Times, an absolutely phenomenal reporter who um, uh, had previously uh, written a uh, very highly regarded book on 
on uh, submarine uh, warfare called Blind Man's Bluff. He co-authored that. Um, and uh, on, on submarine espionage, I should really say. And uh, uh, and uh, and he and I ba- basically, I I got word that uh, there was an attempt to um, uh, to that the Air Force was going to attempt to get a uh, uh, a Medal of Honor for uh, uh, for John Chapman, uh, who uh, I mean I'm going to try to sort of sum this up without going through the entire detailed story, but who basically uh, 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 evidence suggested (coughs) being part of a a SEAL Team 6 element. He was a, John Chapman was an Air Force uh, Special Operator from the 24th Special Tactics Squadron and uh, uh, being assigned to a SEAL Team 6 element um, that had been tasked with taking the highest point of uh, of the Shanikot Valley uh, during Operation Anaconda, but um, for some uh, for various reasons had uh, uh, been tried tried to try to drop the team off right the 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 160th helicopters had had uh, uh, tried at the team's instruction to drop the team off. Um, uh, team leader's instruction who was operating on his SEAL Team 6 chains of, chain of command's instruction uh, to drop the team off right on the top on, of the mountain, which was going to be their observation post. And that broke a sort of, uh, a sort of rule of thumb of, uh, of, of reconnaissance, which is you don't infill by helicopter directly onto your observation post and directly onto your OP. Anyway, it turned out that uh, the Al Qaeda fighters were there. They already, and they, um, as they took the helicopter under fire, uh, Neil Roberts, this um, SEAL, fell or, in one theory, misunderstood a, a command and jumped, but certainly fell from the helicopter and landed in the snow, and was. Um, uh, tragically, uh, you know, basically uh, killed uh, execution style, really, um, by, by, uh, as far as we can tell, uh, um, by the Al Qaeda fighters. Uh, not long thereafter, the the helicopter itself uh, w- was badly damaged, but limped limped north. In fact, landed just uh, uh, several hundred yards uh, north of of where I was literally sleeping um, uh, at the north end of the valley with, uh, with, the, um, with the company, the infantry company command post with which I was embedded. And uh, the SEALs went back to the top of the mountain in another helicopter a short while later in a, in a desperate and incredibly brave uh, uh, attempt to rescue Roberts, um, and they they were able to get off the helicopter, which was again taken under uh, uh, vicious fire by the Al Qaeda fighters. Um, they got uh, badly uh, shot up. They couldn't find Roberts. Um, they couldn't uh, identify him. 
at least, and uh, they got uh, driven off the mountain uh, minus Chapman, who uh, uh, appeared to have been shot dead. And they, they, uh, they were, two or three of them were, were of the other seals were wounded at the time, and and they uh, they couldn't sort of stop to basically collect his body and carry it off the mountain. They they, they were just taking too much heavy fire. Um, and uh, later on, a um, a predator that uh, had a uh, that. Uh, that was over the mountain by that point um, captured a gunfight going on uh, at the top of the mountain at a time when, in theory, no Americans were alive at the top of the mountain, uh, which you know obviously raised a lot of uncomfortable questions uh, in in JSOC because this was a JSOC part of the operation as to who that could possibly be and. Um, although there have been, and I suspect will continue to be, efforts to to undercut this or, or, or to undercut the credibility of, of of the evidence, at least at the moment that I'm speaking to you, the vast majority of the evidence suggests that it was John Chapman, um, and uh, so. Uh, Chris, uh, Christopher Drew and I wrote, wrote an article just detailing all of this in, uh, in the Air Force's attempt to, to prove it. Uh, and that, that was on the, the front page of, of the New York Times. Um, I, and so I, I, I did a couple of other stories for the New York Times, uh, usually with Chris on, uh, you know, a lot to do with, with, with SEALs. Um, the New York Times at the time was very interested in articles about seals. And then um, I went on a contract with Newsweek magazine and I ended up writing the Takagar story for a third. And in fact, if you, if you count Relentless Strike for a fourth time uh, for a cover story for Newsweek, because by then the story had evolved again. And this time the... Um, the, the, you know, the, the, the New York Times story said the Air Force was trying to get a Medal of Honor for Chapman. That, that was the, the sort of the, the, I may not have mentioned that before, but that was, a, that was sort of the key, key part of it. The, the Newsweek story reported the latest developments on that, but of course went, had to recount the, the whole complicated story of the Takagar battle again. But the Newsweek story basically said uh, that... Um, uh, the, the the seals and, uh, and naval special warfare was was and seal team six in, in, uh, in particular were trying to prevent a chapman getting a medal of honor by arguing against it refusing to sign the statements uh, you know attesting to his bravery that they'd given in the immediate wake of the fight and um, and in the meantime, uh, arguing that, uh, proposing instead that uh, Brit Slabinski, the the seal who'd led the uh, uh, the element that went to the top of the mountain with with you know, that Chapman was uh, uh, was part of, and and recommending him for the Medal of Honor instead. Um, now, as, as a lot of your 
uh, audience will know the way it turned out was basically a sort of a deal where uh, both both uh, both service members uh, received medals of honor. Chapman obviously uh, posthumously. Oh, I, sorry, I should have said that. Uh, of course, Chapman was killed. Uh, in you know the the the, the video captures him being uh, being shot. Uh, tra- again, just an incredible tragedy. But um, uh, so Chapman, re- Brit Slabinski uh, received his Medal of Honor, and then John Chapman received his Medal of Honor. Um, and uh, uh, it, but that that was a that was a uh, you know a, another sort of controversial story that that I, I got to write on you know, and that was on the cover of Newsweek back in. Uh, um by that point it was january of no it was i'm sorry this was may of 2018 i believe um so uh that was uh or yeah i think it was april or may of of, of 2018 um and uh that was uh so that, and then right after that I think actually on the day that it was officially published, uh, at least on online, I uh, I started a job at Yahoo News uh, as an investigative national security correspondent, and I was with them uh, until for more than two and a half years. So uh, until early in 2021, when I was. Uh, uh, along with a whole bunch of other people, a victim of uh, a round of corporate layoffs uh, by the Verizon Corporation's Verizon Media uh, component, um, because Yahoo News at, at the time was owned by by Verizon. Um, so I got I got laid off, and uh, uh, since then I've um, I'm, you know I've basically. Uh, uh, you know, I, I did a bunch of research for a project that I put on hold, um, but haven't given up on. On that, that will return to the uh, the early days of the of the war in Afghanistan. Um, but in the in the meantime, I'm I'm excited to be the sort of the co-founder and uh, of of the high side, and it's uh, you know it's it's been an enjoyable ride uh, so far. So, I think that brings us up to date. Yeah, um, and the uh, you know the whole situation with Chapman. I, I remember when that was happening. Um, I was podcasting during that period, uh, and I actually know one of the seals who was there, um, who was wounded. I, I think he was shot, if I can recall correctly. Um, and uh, and I just remember there was so much controversy, uh, you know, about the the entire situation and. Uh, in particular, uh, from the military community, and then, uh, if I can recall correctly, particularly from the army uh, or ex-army guys, like Rangers and Special Forces and stuff, they were very critical of Slabinski and, and the SEALs, uh, and there was sort of a lot of, you know, for lack of a better term, shit-talking uh, about that whole thing. Um, and then, of course, there's a a video on YouTube of... Uh, a, you know the 
the scenario in, in which Chapman was uh, eventually awarded the Medal of Honor, which is uh, difficult to watch, uh, but really uh, in- incredible in its own way uh, to, to see you know him fighting by himself for such a, I think it was like an hour yeah. or so. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, no, it, it, you, you're right. And you're right that the, that the whole episode did create... Um, sort of bad blood in 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 JSOC and I mean I think that's one of the reasons why it was initially you know I, I don't want to say brushed under the carpet but but I, I but it was it kind of was in a way um, uh, they they uh, I mean, to be fair to Jason, they they assigned a, an investigating officer into the Takagar fight, and they, um, you know, and and uh, he, you know, his his findings, you know, weren't weren't really, you know, they didn't stamp classified all over them, um, but. Uh, but I think that's one of the reasons why, um, for instance, nobody tried to get, you know, Chapman a Medal of Honor earlier. Was it was early in the in you know what what we for years referred to as the G what the, the global war on terror and uh, and I, I think that uh, there was a concern at JSOC. And and maybe at, at at U.S. Special Operations Command that airing all of that dirty laundry was going to make it harder to get the different components of the JSOC task forces to work together in in the future. Particularly, uh, as you pointed out, the Air Force Special Operators one sixtieth and the Rangers on one side and uh, SEAL Team Six on the other. Um, uh, so so yeah, I think your 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 memory is 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 good on that. Yeah, um, it's you know it's really unfortunate. Uh, you know, it, ultimately, you know they were taking fire from almost all sides, and they were outnumbered. It was at night. It was freezing cold, um, and you know, and they're getting wounded. That, you know, they thought Chapman had, was killed. Um, so it was really a shitty situation to be in, um, you know, just to sort of, uh, you know, speak sort of accurately about what was happening. And, and, and they just sort of made the decision to leave uh, thinking Chapman was dead. So, I mean, uh, and, yeah. and even even after they left, and this is one thing that obviously the video doesn't show, um, when they when they had sort of jumped off this mountain, essentially, they were still fighting uh, on the way down. Um, I think Slabinski uh, was essentially dragging his wounded teammate. He would leave him somewhere. Like I think there were sort of trees all on this mountain. He would go fight for a few minutes and come back, continue dragging him. So it, it was. It, it didn't just end where the video ended. There was still fighting going on, and then eventually, I think another platoon of rangers made their way to the mountaintop and and ended up taking it. Um, so the battle didn't end where the the video ended. There was there was more to it. Um, oh yes, yeah, there was a lot more. Drama. And and I mean, when the 
when the you know most of the casualties were were taken, you know after Chapman died, and after and after and after Roberts died. I mean they they were the, the most of the 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 operators who were killed were, were killed after the uh, you know when the QRF uh, came in the the the, the Ranger Quick Reaction Force. Um, so you know. I mean, I, you know, I, I'd, I'd refer, I'd refer the audience to n- not a good day to die to, the, to, to read, you know, the details of how this went down because uh, uh, it, it was an incredibly complex operation. But you really get a sense of how, of, of you know, the Clausewitz's uh, concept of the the. the the fog and friction of war and, and 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 you really get a sense of both of those at uh, at work in in um uh, in this uh, uh, in this particular sort of battle within a battle if you like yeah um yeah so uh, you know it was it was great talking to you you know like i said before i'd, I'd read both of your books and uh, both of them are fantastic. Uh, I recommend uh, the audience pick up a copy of both uh, if they're interested in, in some of the history of this, you know, the things that we we're talking about. Um, and and just one more time, if people in the audience want to just keep up with you on social media or, or your Substack, can you just drop it again for them? Sure, sure. On Twitter, I'm at Sean D. Naylor. So that's S E A N D. N A Y L O R, and uh, uh, the Substack that I run with Jack Murphy is called The High Side. T H E H I G H S I D E. The High Side. Substack. Com, and uh, we would uh, we would love to see you there. Mm-hmm.